So as a former Irish person, how much did you relate to this movie? <laughs> I mean, as someone who like leaned very hard into their Irish heritage when the first movie came out, uh, it was interesting for me to go back and reflect on Boondock Saints 2 no longer being Irish. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about it as we go through. But it was a, it was a like kind of interesting experience for me. I, I'm going to tell you I haven't let go of many of those feelings. For those of you who don't know, for a long time, basically your whole life until like, you're fucking like mid, late, what, 30s? Noel here was told he was Irish, believed he was Irish, leaned heavily into his Irish heritage, only to find out via one of those fucking DNA tests that his family has secrets and he isn't really Irish. <laughs> I love that you're throwing this all out there. This is for the world to know now. Yeah. Um, I'm fine with it. I tell anyone who wants to listen. Um, because it is something that is a weird part of me. I had a bit of an identity crisis in my mid-30s. <laughs> finding out that for the longest time, uh, thinking I was an Irish person and no longer being Irish. That's why Cooper keeps saying former Irish. Well, this must also be compounded by your absolute hatred for the Catholic Church, which you have mentioned in numerous episodes. <laughs> oh, that's just Mother Superior from uh, <laughs> the Silent Night, Deadly Night? Silent Night, Deadly Night series. I, yeah. I, I don't enjoy the guilt thrown out by the nuns in that movie that caused a person to become a serial killer. That's for sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's fair, I think. Welcome to Bad Movies and Beer. I'm Cooper. I'm Nolan. And uh, today we are discussing Boondock Saints 2 All Saints Day. This is our St. Patrick's Day episode, in a manner of speaking. And uh, yeah, the sequel to Boondock Saints. Sequel is always a dicey proposition. We're going to watch it. We're going to talk about it. And what is the beer that we are going to enjoy as we talk about it? Yeah, so we always make that connection. Today's connection is Dublin or nothing. Oh, perfect. It's really good because both were watching a sequel here. Yeah. The main characters from our story kind of grew up in Boston but have Irish heritage and roots. And we actually start out this movie in Ireland. There so, you go. So it, it works really well. This is a dry Irish stout. And this is from Beyond the Pale Brewing Company in Ottawa, Ontario. Our nation's capital. Yeah, both of us have spent lots of time in, in Ottawa, so very familiar with that place. Um, I went to this brewery this summer and picked this up, and I really, really enjoyed it. It's got a really cool space. It's in sort of an industrial area. They have a huge brewing area, a big tap room, and an awesome patio. They brew all kinds of different beers. Their name themselves say Beyond the Pale, so they, they make more than just pale ales. So they got a little bit of a, a wordplay in there. And this is a limited release, right? This one, this is not yeah, a regular beer? this is part of their Flash series, so this one's not going to be there all the time, but one of their limited releases. Um, and I, I'm really, really excited to try it. If you're ever in Ottawa and have a chance to visit this brewery, I recommend it. Go Hungry, because they have an amazing barbecue restaurant. I definitely recommend the Beyond the Pale people. Awesome. I don't think I've had anything from them before. Then, like The name sounds familiar to me, but I don't think I can't put a mind to anything that I would have had. Either way, I'm excited to try it. Let's uh, crack this open and see what we got here. So we open with a man walking down the street. There's some religious choir-like singing and a voiceover that tells us that there's two kinds of people in this world, talkers and doers. He says most people are just talkers. All they have is talk. But the doers, they're the ones who change the world. And as the man walks into a church, the voice asks us, which one are you? Yeah, they're putting out a call to action. They're trying to inspire you to be something, right? 
and I'm already kind of hooked. Yeah, <laughs> you're in, eh? I mean, like you said before, what what are the feelings that happen here? And the choral music, they did this a lot in the first one, right? They're over yes, the top they in their yeah. musical notes and uh, in and in a lot of their shots, the slow-mos and all of that stuff. It, it, it's a little extreme, but I'm like, where are we going here? I'll tell you where we're going. We're going to Ireland where we see two men on horses tending some sheep. That, of course, is the twin brothers from the first movie, Connor and Murphy McManus, which is about an 11 out of 10 on the Irish name scale in both cases. <laughs> uh, also, side note, they look like shit. Apparently, there are no combs in Ireland. That's what I learned from watching these two. They actually look like they were in Middle Earth and they were dwarves. They, <laughs> they have these like yeah. unkept beards and they, they did not look like they did in the first one. But what I realized very quickly is that, one, it was the same actors. And I was like, this gets me a little excited. I didn't know that they made a sequel and they've brought everyone back. This is cool. Yeah, uh, they certainly have. They're shepherds, I guess. And they're eating beans out of a can like common hobos. As we get yet another voiceover, this one from their father, who tells us that for the two brothers, the past seemed like a distant dream until suddenly one day someone decided to try to squeeze more money out of people's memories of the first movie by making this sequel. I made up that last part, uh, but, but that's basically why we're here. Come on. Well, it has to be, right? The first one, I don't think people expected to be the kind of cult success that it was. Like, I feel like that was a movie that didn't have tremendous box office but it's something that people found on DVD and loved. Like, this blew up. It was one that you're, everyone was like, have you seen this movie? Have you seen Boondocks? Oh, it made, like, all its money on DVD. It was a massive hit purely from the DVD market. As we go through, we'll talk about it more. But this one is definitely written and designed to play off the, like, feelings and pay homage to the first one. Like, that's what this felt like to me. Yeah, they've got a checklist and they're just going through it for yes, everybody. absolutely, yeah. yeah. The, uh, the father can tell that there's something calling them back to their old lives. It's their uncle, he shows up and tells them that back in Boston, someone has murdered a priest, Father Douglas McKinney, and did it in a way that makes it seem like the brothers did it. We see clips of this in flashback, and then we see the brothers immediately spring into action. The uncle asks the dad if he's going to stop them, but the dad knows what's up. Someone's trying to call them out, see? And he tells us... Someone thinks it's really clever. Only one problem with this little plan was that it works. I mean, that is just pure trailer bait right there. Come on. <laughs> it was. It was definitely pure trailer bait, but uh, it's good because what do we cut to right after that? Oh, smash cut to aggressive rock music and your favorite, a gear up montage. This particular montage also features a large amount of hair and beard trimming and also male ass for some reason. There's lots a of, ton of male Lots <laughs> of naked men. They yeah. uh, they really go for this gear up montage. They see them changing. They spend a lot of time showing their tattoos. There's a lot of religious symbolism in this series. Oh, right? do you think so? Yeah, yeah just a really. little bit. But they're they're back. Yeah. They're on their way. I'm not sure they needed to give us all that barn shower footage, but hey, here we are. I mean, you if it was women doing it, you would not be complaining. You're you know what? You're absolutely right. Maybe it's for the ladies. Yeah. Hey. Or or the men who for all the, that. For all the women who are like, yeah. let's watch Boondock Saints 2 All Saints Day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I you're right. The Boondock series are definitely not created for ladies, I don't think. Yeah, but right. uh, I mean you you gotta throw something in for everybody. Hey, you're absolutely right. Either way. Uh, they walk back into the house looking like themselves from back in the first movie. And when the uncle asks them what they plan to do, Connor throws a couple of pennies on the table and Murphy says, kill every last motherfucker that had anything to do with it. And we get another smash cut to the title card. This one perfectly timed with the guitar solo. Dude. Love it. This is so cliche. Love it. It's like if there was an edit by numbers kit for action movies, 
This is basically the opening to every episode of CSI. <laughs> like seriously. <laughs> no, you're not wrong. Um, it is not an original idea. Nothing in this screams. Nothing of, in this. Nothing. No, <laughs> no, nothing in it screams originality. It felt like to me that they were leaning in super hard on purpose. Like this is one of those situations where I think they're going over the top to make it ridiculous. Now I could be persuaded that they tried to do it seriously and it was just poor performances and acting that maybe lent there, but I, I think there's some intentionality in how bad it is. Maybe that's my ex-Irish in me pulling it back, but I'm not sure. Look at you defending this shit already. This is just we like we are I think we're heading for a massive confrontation. We get to ratings for this because you are defending this with a I haven't seen you defend movie like this in Sweet November. Sweet November was a wonderful movie. God damn it. Uh from there, we fade into a flyover shot of Boston in a news report which catches us up on the plot of the first movie complete with some black and white clips from the original then we see some old friends Dolly, Duffy and Greenlee the same three Boston Irish police stereotypes from the first movie yeah yeah they're debating whether or not this could in fact be the work of the saints and sweating the arrival of the FBI agent I'm sorry special agent she makes that very clear (laughs) who will be taking the lead on this investigation she gets the full babe treatment when she arrives. More rock music and a shot of high-heeled shoes stepping out of a car. Then a behind shot of her legs walking towards them. And again, such a cliche. This whole movie is cliches. But this, to me, is a complete throwback to the way they treat Willem Dafoe's character in the first one. Doesn't he get like a slow like opera build where he's in the fucking church? And it's like, yep, they do do that. And she... It's like a beer commercial. <laughs> yeah, maybe you're right. In terms of the way they introduce Eunice, the character is probably too sexualized. Um, but very quickly, when she goes to investigate the scene, you can tell that she learned from Willem Dafoe. It is it is that character, but it as a female. All I'm going to say about this introduction is, uh, if you haven't seen this movie, I guarantee if you try to picture what I'm talking about, it is exactly what you have in your head. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Um, Eunice Bloom, right? Is special agent special Eunice Bloom. Bloom. Yep. I think she was uh, like a major role in Dexter. I kind yeah, of she's Dexter's wife yes. uh, for the first, or she, he ends up marrying her for the first because he's dating her and then she ends up getting murdered yeah. by that guy. So Spoiler. That's, that's the only way I remember her from. As you mentioned, there's a connection here to Willem Dafoe. She's apparently his protege. She name drops him in there when she correctly guesses which one of the three police officers is Greenlee. He's the funny one, but as he puts it, funny as in ha-ha, not funny as in gay because he's totally not. Those are his words. And this is our first, but certainly not last, instance of like flagrant homophobia in this movie. Yeah, the the humor in here, especially the homophobic humor, is problematic. They also do some, like they drop the R word and do some like sort of mental and physical disability comedy, which isn't great either. The, the level of comedy I did not enjoy, right? And... This is what I wondered because you, for someone who is like so politically correct and very, for someone who's so woke as yourself, uh, (laughs) you say that with uh, a bit of derision derision in your voice. Yeah. But for someone as woke as you, who is constantly criticizing movies for their problematic portrayals, even when they were made in like the 70s and 80s, when that wasn't necessarily a problem. For you to uh, have that side, but also your, I'm Irish, I love the boondock saints side. I'm curious to see which direction you get pulled in here. It, I will tell you that it was an internal struggle. Like I, I hated when those things would come up, but I almost was pulled through it quickly enough because of my feelings for the first movie. I mean, I guess in the first movie, they do a lot of that as well. It's there. But it was also put out in like 2000 or 2001. It was a very different time. This is like not that long ago, this sequel. And that's kind of an issue for me. Yeah. And we had a bit of a conversation before recording about that might be the way that 
those characters would all, all like be talking or would talk or they're still continuing what those characters did in the previous one doesn't make it okay. But that just says those characters did not change with the times. Like that's, they're essentially yeah, like it, frozen right? in time. Right? Like I can understand you want to be true to the characters, but like if the world, like the world has changed in the fucking what like nine or eleven years since the first one came oh, out. Oh, like, I agree. Um, but it hasn't changed everywhere, right? Like would those characters, and especially the characters like this that seem to be very traditional in their belief systems, very conservative, right? I don't know that they would consider those things, right? I don't know that they would think about them. Not that that's okay that they're in the movie, but I don't know that these characters would be changed by our times. Well, I mean, they look frozen in time in that fucking Ireland scene. Like, they're yeah. like goddamn caveman. Like, they haven't fucking... Been, <laughs> they haven't left anywhere, right? They they're just living fucking, yeah, with radio or a television yeah, in exactly. the last hour. So maybe, maybe they are frozen in time. Who the fuck knows? Uh, either way, after a terse introduction where Special Agent Bloom lectures them on their use of profanity, she explains that she's there because the feds actually want to catch the Saints this time and that, as she puts it, She's so fucking smart. She makes smart people feel like they're retarded. Yeah. That's, Again, that's, that's her words. Word. Yep, that's those are the, her words. Yeah, I didn't like that one. This either. whole scene is all kinds of problematic for yeah. all the reasons you've already mentioned. Yeah, this scene does kind of suck. I agree. What I'm thinking here, or what I'm guessing at this point in the movie, is that everyone's back but Defoe. He was like, fuck no, I don't want to. That was my thought, too. Right? I'm like, he wouldn't fucking go near yeah, this. Yeah, he's like, no, no, that one turned out better than I thought it would, and we're just going to take it and run with it, but uh, we're not making another one is sort of how I felt about it. Yeah, uh, from there we go to some kind of bare-knuckle fighting ring taking place on a cargo ship. I'm not sure why the brothers are there, but they are speaking Spanish and quickly betting on a much smaller and handcuffed Mexican fighter who spends the fight against his much larger opponent firing off terrible one-liners about how tough Mexicans are on his way to inevitably winning. This character sucks. Can I just put that out there? The intro to the Mexican was pretty rough. This might be the character in the movie that I enjoyed least. Um, I don't know. It just didn't seem necessary. But I guess in the first one, the team kind of had a goofy, dumbass sidekick, and they were just trying to bring back that feeling again. Um, but it is a, a silly character for sure. Yeah. Uh, after Special Agent Bloom takes a very quick look at the crime scene, she immediately deduces that this murder was not, in fact, committed by the Saints. So the three Boston cops think she'll be out of their hair, but she has no plans on leaving. She's also figured out that it was only one shooter, not two, and uses Greenlee to demonstrate. This does two things. It gives her a chance to show how smart she is, and it also gives the screenwriter a chance to work in some terrible comedy. Short jokes, mostly, but also Greenlee perving out over Special Agent Bloom. <laughs> It's funny how we can tell right away your feelings about the movie too, right? You're coming in too negative? You, you're very critical really quickly, and I think that that's interesting, right? Um, because you don't, you've only seen the first one once, and you didn't have feelings. You're, I wasn't a big fan. I think, the, again, the problem was, it was, uh, we were talking about this before we started recording, but it was so hyped up. People fucking love the first one, and I kind of saw it later on. So people had hyped it up for so many years. This amazing fucking movie. When I watched it, I was kind of underwhelmed. And so for me, I was like, eh, overrated. And then the sequel, I mean... You're not a fan of movies that try to cash in on the success of the first one. Yeah, I'm not a big sequel guy. No, you're the... Why are we cash grabbing? And that's fair. Although, ironically, as someone who owns all five Death Wish movies, maybe that's not necessarily fair. <laughs> five Death Wish movies? That's right. The last one, he fights the fashion mafia. Oh, my God. I kind of want to see that now. <laughs> oh, well, we can watch it. Uh, they show us the assassin's face here, but we still don't know who he's working for until they tell us right after this scene. The brothers just happened to hear a news report on the radio about Concesio Yacoveta, the son of the mob boss they killed in the last movie. So clearly, he's the one who hired the hitman to bring them back and get revenge for his father. 
As we see in the next scene, though, his uh, business associates are not on board with this. Yeah, we kind of get that stereotypical mafia table scene. They're having dinner together, and <laughs> you know what? The more we talk about it, the more stereotypical this movie That's feels. right, yeah. And they're all upset with him because now he's called the Saints back, and now they're all at risk. But he goes on a very long-winded conversation needing to... Uh, he says how they need to fuck everything before they get fucked. Yeah, so I forgot to mention, but Concesio is played by Judd Nelson, who is totally just doing an Al Pacino impression in this scene, and not well. <laughs> You're he right. Do, he, does You're give right. A, <laughs> he does give an impassioned speech, like you said, to his partners about why this is all a good idea. And the exact quote is, These sons of bitches prison fucked us in the ass! And then they wiped their dicks on our grandma's drapes! Uh, <laughs> I thought it was graves. It's drapes? No, they're toweling off on grandma's drapes. Oh, it's a comment about grandma's pubic hair? Oh, God. Like drapes the euphemism? No, that'd be the carpet. Oh, carpet. But, uh, oh, drapes, the... drapes would be the hair. Oh, uh, the hair. What? Yeah, they came on grandma's face and then toweled off on her hair. You know, like you do. <laughs> oh, my God. This got weird. <laughs> Later on, he attacks one of his own dudes who dared to tell him how to pronounce the word serendipitous. He smacks him out of his chair with the salami. <laughs> he breaks a fucking nose. <laughs> Dude, like, <laughs> ridiculous. See, this is where my point about them leaning in to intentionally bad comes from. Like, this is where I think they're laughing at themselves. All right. You're clearly enjoying this, but this scene is about five minutes longer than it needs to be. Like, we get it. He's a very scary man. Come on. Well, you're right. This is longer than it needs to be. This movie is longer than it needed to be as well. Oh, a lot of padding in this. And speaking of, we get a couple of back-to-back -back scenes where the Mexican fighter from earlier convinces the brothers to let him join them. But first, they debate whether or not going back to their original look was a good idea. This devolves into Connor calling Murphy a for suggesting they dye their hair blonde to make themselves less recognizable. And again, this is like the third homophobic thing we've had. We're 20 minutes into this movie. Like, I haven't been to 2009 in a while, but I remember it being more tolerant. Yeah, the homophobia is definitely not playing well for me. It's hard that these characters, that the only way they kind of insult each other is through homophobia. It's a weird kind of thing they have going on. Uh, it's kind of just two brothers constantly getting drunk and disagreeing and fighting. But then also the ones who were supposed to be sort of heroes cleaning up Boston. Yeah, so you're saying it's forgivable because their hearts are in the right place. No, I'm not. Yeah. It's not forgivable, but I think it's likely that those characters would say those things at the time. Yeah, as we said earlier, they are nothing if not frozen in time. Now from there we get a couple of cop scenes. Special Agent Bloom talks to Boston's chief of police. He wants to tell the public that the Saints didn't commit the murder to avoid a riot because I guess Boston is split right down the middle on this thing. But she wants to hold him off, and then the three detectives argue over whether or not the brothers are actually on their way back. Both of these scenes reek of padding to me. There's no new information. This does nothing to move the plot along. Yeah, you're right. And I also think the three police having their conversation is way over the top here. I have it in my notes as like, what's happening? In some ways, I'm trying to make excuses for this movie because... It really is a bad movie, and we're not going to get away from it. Oh, that. I'm so glad you said that, because I was really worried for a minute there. <laughs> no, it is a bad movie, but I'm still on the fence whether it's intentionally bad or not. I don't know, man. Is it on purpose? Uh, back on the ship, or I guess off the ship now, it's a good thing they brothers of that Mexican guy join. Side note, do we know what his name is at this point? I'm not sure. They really they just refer to him as a Mexican, and I think they also refer to him as their Mexican, which is problematic, right? Yeah, a little bit. 
Either way, he just happens to know important information about Yakoveta's illegal dealings with the Chinese, including where his heroin is being shipped. He takes them right to it after a short scene in his car that, in addition to the three of them, is also carrying a huge amount of casual racism. <laughs> yeah. Come on. <laughs> They're going to try and hit Yakaveta in his pocketbook first by taking out his drug business that's a part of theirs. And they're going to go into one of their first action scenes. How did that sort of play out when you watched it? Okay, so this is just bizarre to me. We get this strange sequence where after Connor says, okay, here's the plan, we launch into like a stylized 1970s cop show version of what he's describing, complete with funky era appropriate music. What was this? Yeah, this happens a couple of times in this movie where they visually demonstrate the plans, but the plans are like a kind of dreamy sequency thing. Like they're thinking of it in their head. And I'm trying to understand whether this has to be an attempt at comedy because it's, I don't know, I laughed at it, but it was also confusing. Instead of just breaking into the action of what was actually supposed to happen, they do a stylized version, and then they switch to reality that is much messier. Yeah, it's a big tonal shift, and as you said, we don't actually see what happens. Instead, we fade out and back to reveal several dead bodies and our three stereotypical detectives surveying the scene, including Greenlee doing his best impression of Willem Dafoe from the first movie, only listening to 80s soft rock instead of opera like Dafoe was. That was actually enjoyable. I laughed my ass off when he put motoring on and tried to start figuring it out. Sister Christian? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, motoring! That was a funny (laughs) moment. I laughed pretty hard. It was good. Anyway, he concludes that it wasn't actually the brothers who pulled this job, but Special Agent Bloom immediately shoots him down. She says it was them, all right, and now we see what really happened via a series of flashbacks. Long story short, this does not go as smoothly as they imagined. No, I didn't love this. Like, replay of what happened, there's some aggressive techno music going on, and we get the Romeo character's first sort of addition to the team is to drive them in a forklift in a container, And crash it down on the ground from an absurd height. Yeah. And they were very fortunate not to have died from the crashing down. But we know these two characters are kind of superheroes in a way, right? They're they're not going to die. Oh, my God. There's so many of those moments. Uh, Speaking of the murders, I actually had this thought when the brothers execute the guy in charge here. Why do the victims just sit there when they say the prayer? It's like 30 seconds long. Get up and run. You know what I mean? And if someone does get up and run, do they just shoot them? Or do they have to, like, chase them down, knock them down again, and start the prayer over? I think it's the latter. I think they shoot them in the legs (laughs) and then pull them back and perform it again. I'm just saying, man, if you're that guy on the ground, try something. You're completely right. No person in their right mind, unless they were sort of locked in fear, would sit there knowing we're about to get executed. Why it happens is obviously for movie making, not reality. Oh, So much of the stuff in this is. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, all of it's about style and not substance. Oh, that is exactly, like, you just spoiled my fucking rating for this. Uh, <laughs> just, oh, sorry. It's fine. No, it's fine. It's going to come up my rating 100%. Now, where do the brothers head after all this goes down? To their friend, Doc's Bar. He's an elderly gentleman with Tourette's, also from the first movie. They have some drinks and joke about his Tourette's, and we finally learn the Mexican guy's name here. It's Romeo. So this scene here, uh, more padding. This is a straight throwback. Like, every time they had a successful takedown in the first movie, they would do this, right? Um, And I think it's partly to do some bonding with Romeo to integrate him into the team a bit more and definitely to bring Doc back, who was a fan favorite from the first one. Now, you're right. Is it necessary to move the plot along? Absolutely not. Does it build a connection with the people watching and the characters? Maybe a little bit, right? Yeah, I'll buy that. But speaking of things unnecessary to move the plot along... We now get a random flashback from their dad as a tack coming off his chair causes him to remember a day back in New York City, 1958, 
where he was working in like an upholsterer's workshop and he witnessed his boss get murdered by some organized crime goons. What is this backstory doing here? Isn't this a key to the plot of the movie? Is it? Is it really though? Yeah, it's the very reason why the brothers were called back in the first place. Right, I think you could have like mentioned this, or just kind of thrown it in there, or explained it at the end, because we have a lot of time at the end where the characters involved kind of interact. I, I just don't know this scene was necessary. You don't think they needed to show it? I don't. This story or the one they're kind of showing here, it shows the audience why their dad became a murderer, and therefore the brothers. Like the whole thing is backstory, and I think it adds a layer that. If it wasn't there in the original one, it sort of shares what's happening here. Look at you defending this thing. You are just all in. <laughs> Do you know who? One for bad, ten for enjoyable. <laughs> who is the person who gets murdered? His boss. No, it was his father. What? Their grandfather. No, it wasn't. It absolutely is. They say it later in the movie. Are you sure? Yes. I did not get that. Okay, we'll talk about it more later. All right, we're clearly disagreeing on this, but I did have this thought here. This seems less like a movie and more like a series of loosely connected scenes. You know what I mean? It's like they had ideas for individual scenes and then try to kind of tie it together. And we get another one here from the Italians who just argue and make fun of each other. And they're terrible. Yeah, this scene where they go back to the Italians is really poorly acted. And I wrote down that this scene is intentionally shit. Like, it has to be. There's no way. Like, this to me is them making fun of themselves, because if not, it's just really bad, and that's how you interpreted it, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, it might just be unintentionally bad, and I'm giving too much credit to it, but they seem to be making fun of themselves in this scene. Maybe? I mean, again, I guess we don't really know, right? Like, this is the thing. You can take it either way. Uh, in another lucky stroke, though, it turns out that Romeo's uncle Cesar knows where to find anything or anyone that's hidden in the city of Boston, so the brothers decide to meet with him. He looks kind of like Fred Armisen, and at this point, if it had actually been Fred Armisen, I would not have been surprised. <laughs> he tells the brothers there's a price on their heads, and he points them in the direction of gorgeous George, and then we get a scene with Romeo crying because his uncle showed him the tiniest amount of affection, and the brothers making fun of him because, of course, they are. Yeah, because he's showing emotion, and we know they have very, very old-school way about their beliefs. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So anyway, do you know who else is looking for Gorgeous George? Special Agent Bloom. And she finds him getting what is hopefully not an erotic massage. <laughs> um, he makes it clear when Agent Bloom comes in and pulls his towel down that uh, he's not interested in that kind of massage. So I guess it isn't supposed to be an erotic massage. Well, she makes it a little erotic, though, by aggressively paddling his ass. <laughs> no? <laughs> that not, just me? This is strange. I didn't understand why there was a giant paddle in the massage room. Great, great question, yeah. <laughs> but she pulls it out and just smashes him on the ass with it and he falls off the table and flashes some D. <laughs> yeah, she, she tells him they know Yakavetta had the priest killed as a way to rile him up and it works. We see him absolutely frantic in the next scene and I actually love that when he mentions Yakavetta's panic room, they start talking about the movie Panic Room. That's great. <laughs> I think that's a fun nod. There are some funny, clever moments that pop up in here. Uh, for me, there are precious few highlights in this movie so I have to kind of take what I can get but that was one for me though. More father backstory now as we see that he avenged his boss slash possibly father's death by killing the men responsible. His first kills, presumably, right? Like in his career? It's funny because the flashbacks tend to lend credence to that this is supposed to be a serious movie. and But a lot of the other stuff in it seems silly. So I'm sort of having this internal battle where I'm trying to figure out whether they're leaning hard into going over the top uh, on some of the themes from the first one or they're trying to build legitimate scenes for this movie. It's kind of... My own, I used to be Irish and I'm no longer anymore argument, and I'm fighting myself here. <laughs> yeah. I'm having an internal struggle. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. 
We get another flashback here from the brothers this time. They pay a visit to their friend Rocco's grave, which sends us to a flashback of him being killed. And after a joke about his internment photo being his mugshot, they get word on where they can find George. And do they ever find him? He's in a tanning salon, and I love that before he gets in the bed, he takes a long look at himself in the mirror and comments on his choice of Speedo. European cut. Far superior. <laughs> the gorgeous George character is pretty funny. He's great, man. Yeah, they do a good job with that character. His hair is out of control. It's so high, and he's got that awesome fake tan. He's going for massages, and all he really cares about is self-preservation. He is a fucking sleazebag of, like, the highest order. Yeah. Yeah. Back at the police station, Special Agent Bloom figures out that a rosary bead found at the scene might be the key to the whole thing. See, apparently, this hired gun is a complete fucking idiot who took his gloves off to compare hand sizes with the priest because he might have little man syndrome? Uh, he might. <laughs> they do shots of this before this point. Like, this isn't the first time we see him measuring himself and showing that he's a very small man. And <laughs> it's weird. We're being told that he's only murdering because he's a small man. Yeah. I didn't like the motivation for this. Like, him being a psychopath just because he's tiny. Dude, you didn't like it? I'm borderline furious that after all the short jokes of the crime scene that this dude's height might actually have something to do with it. <laughs> like, come on, man. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, no, it's definitely connected there. What sort of shows up for me here is the part of Bloom explaining all of this. She's putting on a really bad accent. Oh, my God. I don't know what the fuck this accent is. I can't tell, but she is not good at whatever it is. No. So I really struggled with this after the, this point in the movie. Every time she spoke, I had a lot of problems with it. I wasn't sure what she was doing, and it really took away from the movie for me. Oh, for sure, man. Uh, after a quick scene of the aforementioned killer making a phone call to a mysterious Italian, the brothers wipe out gorgeous George's henchman in a Mexican bar. But not George, though. They leave him around for more comic relief. Oh, and he uh, shit his pants earlier also? <laughs> yeah, they make a lot of comments about how it smells worse than working on a sheep farm and those kind of things. Uh -huh. That scene we see with the hired killer, the short complex one, definitely shoves the audience right into those backstories, right? Like, it's pretty clear right away they're spelling it out for us that the partner that their dad had... Uh, enabled all of those murders is now coming back uh, again in some way. Something's happening in that relationship. Apparently, uh, they are feeling good about things right now, though, having just taken out George's guys, but they almost get killed by that shooter. Luckily, Special Agent Bloom is there to save them, and she introduces herself as their new guardian angel. Also, Willem Dafoe's character died. They kind of threw that in there. Yeah, that's interesting. They talk about Dafoe's character dying and them all knowing about it, but we don't have any of the context from the first one. This is just sort of dropped on us. It's a way, I guess, to explain why he isn't in this movie. Yeah, I guess. It turns out that she isn't actually interested in solving the investigation. She, much like Willem Dafoe at the end of the first movie, is there to help them wipe out the criminals. Now, is it my imagination or are everyone's accents slipping in the scene? <laughs> You're right. Um, they're all losing it here. They're trying to show that they're all working together. The team is back together. Um, and they're going to take down this crime family, and I'm enjoying myself at this moment. It, is it a good movie? No. No, but no. it's definitely pulled me back into some of my feelings from the first one. 
I'm wondering who this was made for, and I felt like the first one was definitely made for teenage men and maybe people in their early 20s, and I feel like this one is designed for those exact same people. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, it was not made for a teenage or early 20s. It was designed for those people who liked it, but 10 years later. Hey, if you haven't aged emotionally in the last 10 years, <laughs> if we got a movie for you. <laughs> They're really just trying to get the same audience to enjoy uh, this one that I'd enjoy the first one. Oh, yeah. They're definitely not trying to cast a wider net by any stretch of the imagination. So Special Agent Bloom helps them right away by telling the local PD that this was a shootout between gang members and definitely not the work of the Saints. Meanwhile, Dolly, Duffy, and Greenlee have received confirmation on the shooter's identity and height from Interpol, and they casually toss in that he arrived in the country two days after 9-11. Apparently, being able to sneak someone in like that during the height of American national security is beyond the reach of a mobster like Yacoveta, so clearly there are more powerful forces at play here. Gee, I wonder if that mysterious phone call the shooter made five minutes ago has anything to do with that. What do you think? Yeah, they're spelling all of this out really heavily right now. They're not leaving anything to your imagination, and they're not assuming that people watching this movie are able to infer too much. <laughs> not trusting the audience, No, eh? not at all. No. We get the reunion next between the brothers and their three detective friends. They're getting the band back together, and apparently the plan is to kill Yakavetta at the Prudential Tower, which I guess is where he's hiding. This sounds good to Special Agent Bloom, although she remains concerned about the mysterious figure behind the scenes. We get a glimpse of him now, where he removes a bullet from the shooter's abdomen, and from there we quickly cut to Yakovetta's hideout, where he suddenly pieces together the idea that maybe he's been played by someone higher than him on the food chain. And what does he plan to do about it? Put out an all-call for gunmen and take back the streets. <laughs> I don't like his chances. I don't like no, his chances I don't all. think so either. This character is flailing around. He tries to make like a carpe diem reference, I think, and it goes really poorly. He's the one who can't pronounce many words. Like he is intentionally a very failed gangster. He's not smart. He's not a smart no. guy. We learned that very quickly. But yeah, it's interesting. So he calls on all of his gangsters to get out on the street, right? He tries to send all of his lieutenants out, or at least he's planning to do so. When uh, Who decides to drop in on him at the Prudential? Well, we get a quick uh, scene of the brothers buying some sexy, sexy guns first. <laughs> yeah. I do like this scene. This is the person who arms them in the first one. And they play just a hilarious song as they find their gun. What song was it? I didn't hear it. The main line in it was b deep in your love. Right. Yeah, this has <laughs> got to be a song they made up for this, right? Like a I, joke song? I, I think so, because it was over the top, but enjoyable too. Are you, did you enjoy the part of the scene where Romeo is very concerned about whether or not his custom Mexican flag pistols are uh, perhaps too effeminate? His exact quote is, Hey, you don't know me. Please make me look gay. You look like you might have seen one up close. Yeah. Boo, uh, 2009. It's not good. Boo. Yeah. Um, that part is problematic for two reasons. Both the homophobia and the... Racism? Like, racism, yeah. yeah. It is clearly a bunch of racism in that section too, so... That's the hard part on this movie, right? This is what makes this a really bad movie is how cheaply the lines are delivered and the comedy is written. Well, this is what it goes back to my thing before about how it's kind of like individual scenes, not a whole like coherent plot. I feel like with the script too, like it's like they have ideas for individual lines. They try and build scenes around those lines. I mean, the first one jumped a lot as well. It did. Right. And I think this follows that theme, but you're, you're right that sometimes that leads to like the frenetic action, but I think it also can lead to it feeling really disjointed. Yeah, disjointed is a good word for that. From there, we go to the Prudential Tower and we see that most, if not all, of Yakovetta's crew has been wiped out. 
Special Agent Bloom is about to paint a detailed but presumably false picture of exactly what went down that night. Before she can do it, a different special agent, John Kunstler, barges in and announces that he's in charge now. And sure enough, he immediately lets Bloom, or Bloomy as he calls her, know that she's suspended. Her response? To tell her words, that that's fine. But before she goes, she's going to paint her picture anyway. And she does, as we see again, flashback style, exactly what happened. Yeah, we go back into one of those flashbacks. She describes the way that the saints kind of come in, fly through the window, and take everybody down. It doesn't go quite as smooth as they had planned. Uh, as we kind of know from the first heist and what we've seen in the first one, despite there being hiccups in their plan, they always end up managing to murder everyone and take everything down. Oh, yeah. Surprisingly, this scene involves some gratuitous violence. <laughs> yeah. I did kind of like the scene that comes into this where Romeo is in a closet with a janitor and he's trying to get the janitor to help him come up with a cool action hero tagline. Yeah, we got some meta comedy here. It was definitely meta. Took me out of it. Took me out of it. Oh, you didn't like it though, no? no? Took me out of it. The reenactments are not great. They're really cheesy. Oh my God. Uh, You you weren't uh, sucked in by the incredibly realistic scene where the brothers jump off the roof of the Prudential Tower with ropes tied around their waist, fly down like 20 stories, smash through the windows of Yakovetta's penthouse after first shooting the ropes around them at the perfect moment and then slide the entire length of the room shooting everyone while never getting shot themselves. You know, like anyone in that situation would. (laughs) They... (laughs) They are the same as they would have been in the first one. I think it just doesn't play as well because it doesn't seem as cool anymore, right? It's one of those things that I'm also not a, like, teenage boy, so it, and I'm also not Irish anymore. Well, and like, you've seen more movies since then, yeah, right? Like, this shit has become, like, such a cliche. So she goes through and talks this reenactment, and then all of a sudden out of the panic room, what happens? Well, yeah, there's one member of Yakovetta's crew that's still alive, and it's fucking Ricky from Trailer Park Boys. I know, I had to pause it. I hadn't recognized until this moment, but they do a close-up on him, and I'm like, wait a minute, that's fucking Ricky. It is indeed. Uh, He pulls Special Agent Bloom into the panic room where he was hiding, confirms her version of the events, and then tries to cut a deal by offering up information on the guy who was really behind all of this, the old man. Mm. He doesn't know much about him, except that one time someone referred to him as the Roman. We know who it is. Yeah. We've seen seen the flashbacks. We know what's happening. This is not much to go on, so they need a plan. And as they're formulating that plan, we see the shooter hiding behind a fire hydrant watching them. Now, this is fucking ridiculous. Like, he's not that short. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking fire hydrant. (laughs) They have tall fire hydrants in Boston. I don't know if you've seen them. They're about four feet high. Um, And such bullshit. And he only needed to just... Crouch just a little bit, right? <laughs> That's ridiculous. Um, yeah, I don't. I I find the whole height thing weird. I didn't understand that motivation. Yeah. Was it to be funny? I'm not sure. Were they actually trying to give him a motivation? Again, this is one of those internal struggles. Are they making fun of themselves, or are they just really shitty? Is the whole thing just like a small d- joke? Oh, maybe Is that what it is. Maybe we're about to get kind of small peen into the sacomatic conversation, so we're moving that way. Uh, I don't know, man. From there, we cut back to Doc's bar. Greenlee walks in talking about his big sack and gets immediately blown away right in front of the brothers. That was sudden, man. Yeah, he calls himself the Sackomatic. 
Great last words. I'm the second. <laughs> I'm the second. <laughs> Those aren't actually his last yeah, words. Yeah, but they're but yeah. pretty close to it, right? He just yeah. brags about having big balls and then gets taken down by uh, a little man with a little penis, as you've described. <laughs> I see a little penis. Yes, you do. Oh, my God. All right. Uh, just as suddenly, though, their father appears, disarming the shooter who had taken Doc hostage. Shot then, him right through the fucking hand. Well, he holds a gun to his head, too, and demands to know where the old man is. So he's back from Ireland just in the nick of time. And what happens now is just fucking ridiculous. Him and the shooter both end up pointing their guns at each other, and three different times the shooter pulls the trigger, but three different times nothing happens. Because God, I guess? No, the dad brings out two, like, six shooters. He places a single bullet in each, spins the barrels, and they're playing Russian roulette. The dad is so accomplished, he knows how to spin those barrels to ensure his safety and not the safety of the other. You are such a fucking homer for this movie. <laughs> I cannot believe what you're saying well, right Well, this is how, how it's explained. This is the only way that it makes logistical sense. The dad, you're right. That is the only way. It's the only way it makes yeah. sense. And the dad knew he needed to put the other guy into a place where he would be so afraid he would give up the information to the old man. His sons did not like it, but he told them that daddy's working and pushed them away. <laughs> That's right. Now the shooter refuses to give up the old man, so the dad just blows him away. After saying goodbye to Greenlee, we get another flashback. This time, it's the brother spending time with Rocco. This is basically a passionate plea for a return to old school manhood. There are so many fucked up quotes here. John Wayne died with five pounds of undigested red meat in his ass. Not the man! There's some real old school masculinity and misogyny in oh, here. Dude, they're just brawling out so hard. Um, Yeah. And it made me wonder whether the people who wrote this believe that. Like, it's one guy. It's one guy who wrote it, and the answer is yes. There's a documentary about him. Oh, he really? is just a fucking, like... Is he a maniac? Yeah, just okay. a, so fucking bro-ish. This whole sequence ends in a weird fucking way, man. Yeah, Greenlee that... skates up on fucking, like, hockey ice. Yeah, why were they on ice? I don't... So we can skate up. He says, thanks for coming out and shooting a slap shot directly at the camera. Jesus Christ. How can you fucking defend this shit, Noel? Oh, I am struggling now. You, this this scene bothered me. Finding out that this is written by some, like, fucking dumbass bro who believes these things makes me upset. What makes me upset is both brothers, like, wake up at this point. So this was some kind of simultaneous dream? <laughs> like, they, bo they, both, they both know yeah, what happened. Like, I missed what, what that. Is this? I missed that, but you're right. Yeah. Now we get another dad flashback as he explains to his boys how all of this is his fault. Because of an endless quest for revenge, he started as a youth. Back then he had an accomplice, Louis, he called him, Italian guy. And you'll never believe it, but he's the Roman. What are the odds? Yeah, they, they spelled this out to us about half an hour ago. But they're explaining it just in case you weren't smart enough to figure that out. In keeping with the rest of this movie. Yeah, I mean, it is always on the nose here. Yep. Now, Special Agent Bloom has also figured out who and uh, where this guy is, which A, is going to cost her her career when she gives that information to the Saints, and B, gives us a scene showing off just how bad an actor the guy playing Special Agent Kunstler is. He flips out a Ricky from the Trailer Park Boys after first smashing his plate in a way that makes his lunch fly up in the air. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> I didn't see, or I missed that scene. It didn't sort of stick with me, but Kunstler was a massive joke, too. Like, even giving him the name Kunstler is, like, just so low-hanging. Yeah. yeah. I recognize the guy's face, too. I don't know what he's from, but uh, yeah, probably know. nothing significant. Probably not. Anyways, now time for the Saints to kill the Roman. And inexplicably, despite being heavily guarded, the dad is just able to walk in and sit down across from him. Well, 
they show the Roman sort of setting this up. He calls another Italian and asks for more tomatoes. This is a clearly racist connection to, like, gangsters. All right. They want the dad to walk through. They want him to go there. Louis wants this conversation with them. They need to address this because they have a big history, right? Oh, yeah. Now, the actor playing the Roman here is Peter Fonda, which is the second most surprising cameo in this movie. They have a quick little conversation where the Roman reveals that back then he was working for one of the organized crime families, using old dad there to help wipe out their competition. And it turns out he's running his own sequel here, as the reason he had that priest kill was to bring the saints out of hiding to wipe out the Yacovetas, thus clearing another path for him. With that out of the way, though, it's time for the shooting. Before we get into the shooting, did you notice the mustache? It's a little gross. <laughs> it's a gross mustache, yeah. but you can see all of the adhesive. <laughs> it was one of those like yeah. the the adhesive strip that stuck the mustache to his face was so obvious in the close-up that they did three or four times that i didn't give a fuck about whatever he was saying <laughs> i was good. like oh my god this is such a fail in terms of their like makeup and prosthetics that yeah. i'm like I, I can't move past this. It, I have like a half a page of notes just saying that those those <laughs> zooms need to be cleaned up and it's killing me. They cut away for a second and we go back and he's wearing a different mustache. Okay, come on. I did not notice that. Absolutely. Really? A, All right. a different one. And, I love that. That's funny to me. And so clearly one scene happened in one day and the other in the other, but... I was losing it. And then we get to the action. Oh, yeah. With that out of the way, it's time for the shooting. And these scenes are just ridiculous. With the brothers jumping off yet another roof, falling like 30 feet and landing in a stone fountain unharmed. Not to mention the three of them. Well, four, actually. Romeo is there, too. Killing like 50 guys while Peter Fonda just sits there. Although, in the one action movie cliche they do avoid, the Saints actually sustain some damage. Connor gets clipped and they even lose dear old dad, but not before he finishes off the Roman. Now dad knows he's done for and fires off one last line. I'll see you in a minute, Louis. Man, they just slather on the drama for this death scene. Yeah, it's weird that Louis would bring them there. Was he hoping to kill all three and then he could take his throne as the head of the Italian mob in the area? Or convince them to like work for him or something maybe? I don't know. Well, like, and then they had a very long nature-nurture argument. Yeah, they did. That's true, yeah. Right? Like, so it was it was strange to me. I, I don't know if that was just the like writer of all of this trying to like tell people what he believes. Yeah, working some themes that he's yeah, passionate about. I, I think know. so. That's what it kind of felt like. Um, but yeah, we do have what is a very dramatic death and the brothers sort of collect themselves. They don't put pennies in everyone's eyes or set up the scene here, but they walk out and what do they run into? Well, okay. Before we do that though, I have a quick question for you. What happened to Romeo? Does he make it or not make it? We, we just don't, don't know. We just don't see him. We don't know. We have no idea. Yeah. Fucking no need. They're just like, ah. Uh, they, no, they just decide that he doesn't matter anymore, yeah, which is that's right. ridiculous, right? I mean, that is also a racist move. <laughs> I would agree, man. Uh, so, yeah, when they walk outside, they find a ton of heavily armed SWAT-type guys waiting for them, and they have no choice but to drop their guns and get taken into police custody. It sure doesn't seem like they'll be there long, though, as in the next scene, we see their uncle transporting a disguised Special Agent Bloom to the man who's going to help get her to a safe location. And that man is Willem Dafoe, who I cannot believe agreed to come back for this. This I wasn't expecting. 
Oh, me neither. I'm like, like there's a zero percent chance. Well, this photos I was not expecting. I thought the entire like, I mean, clearly he was willing to come back and get paid for one day's work. But I, I didn't hate this. Like, I liked that that was sort of the 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 gang is coming back together. We're gonna bust them out. Yeah, it turns out he faked his own death, and now he wants to break the brothers out of jail, like you alluded to there. Get them back to work and take this thing to a whole new level. And we end with the two brothers looking out of the window of the prison hospital and shooting finger guns at all the prisoners looking up at them. And this is where I had the thought, God help me, if someone spends any money to make a Boondock Saints 3 after this, they need to have their head examined because what a turd this was. (laughs) It's coming. Boondock Saints. No, but you know what's funny is I had that comment. I subsequently looked it up. Apparently, they are actually making a Boondock Saints 3. Is it in the prison? I don't know where is it is, man. Back? No, Wilmington Flow's going to break him out of prison. They're going to go back and fucking rid the world of organized Yeah, but they're going to spend the first 20 minutes of them, like, fighting and kicking everyone's ass in prison, right? I don't know. I, I cannot believe someone's going to go back for round three of, of this. Of course they are. I didn't know they made number two. So yeah. um, it does surprise me that people are still funding this. But I assume maybe the person who wrote it has made enough money now on the success of these two to just continue it despite the fact that it should not continue. Well, this is part of the documentary with this guy. He got paid like a famously large sum for the screenplay and then just like basically alienated everyone that he worked with in Hollywood because he was to fucking like, I don't know if he's on drugs, but he seems kind of coked up in the thing. Got some messed like, up shit, yeah. Yeah, just like aggressively So whatever, I don't had know. Had you watched that documentary before watching this? Oh, God, no. I, before watching this, yeah, I watched it years ago. So do you think it that... It was very famous. I can't remember what it's called now. Do you think that influenced your opinion about this film? No, I think this film influenced my opinion about this film. Okay. Like, I, I okay, I do think, to be fair, that... You would have had probably a more critical lens. Not being you, a huge fan of the first one. Yeah probably like, I was not looking forward to watching this. Let's put it that way. Yeah. It's interesting how, when your expectations are a certain way, you can either confirm or like meet what you thought was going to happen. Right. I don't think I manifested this being bad with a preconceived attitude. If that's what you're implying. No, no, no. Like, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that expectations going in are different. Right. I, I think, I think this is bad and we're going to get to our ratings yeah. like right now. So we should probably just do that. As always, we rate this on a scale of one to 10, two times. 1 to 10 for how bad it is, 1 to 10 for how enjoyable it is. And the goal is to find movies that are a 10 or 10 on both scales. What we call a crit 20. And uh, for me, this one, it's a bad movie. I think it's fucking really bad. Like, <laughs> really bad. It is just like, it's it's one of those things where they're they're trying to make it more than it is. I felt that way about the first one and this one I feel like they are really fucking trying to make it more than it is by like the the weird segue to like the 70s cop show mm-hmm. thing. They're just like what if we do this? What if we do this? They're throwing a bunch of shit at the wall trying to connect these scenes that feel independent to me. The the script, the the fucking lines in this are just like the jokes, the one-liners. They're not good, man. They're not good. A lot of them are problematic and like yeah. in general they're just not good. So, I don't know, man. I have this as a 9 bad. Only because, and you've kind of proven it here today, I think fans of the first one would appreciate this sequel to some degree. I, not being a fan of the first one, did not appreciate it, but I think there's enough there that I won't give it a 10 or a 10 bag because it probably, for some people, gave them what they came for. And on that note, how bad do you think it was? (laughs) I went into this movie um, not knowing that a sequel existed and being a large fan of the first one. That being said, this is going to surprise you, but before having this conversation, the number I have down in my notes for how bad it is, is a nine. 
the acting's bad, the writing's bad. It's really cut and paste, like you said. I liked that they had the original cast back. I liked that it felt like they were sticking to the same kind of themes and momentum and the style and the cuts that were in the first one. They don't hold up in the same way, right? That felt novel the first time that we saw it or the first time Boondocks came out. And when you do all of those same things again many years later, it doesn't feel in the same way novel. For all of those things, it, it is a bad movie. It belongs on this podcast for sure. Nine out of ten, bad movie. Okay, so we agree on that one, that, but I think this is where we're going to split off here. How enjoyable did you have it on a scale of 1 to 10? So this is the internal struggle again for me, right? This is one of those where it pulled me back into many of the things that I enjoyed from the first one. I enjoyed the musical cues that led into slow-mo action. God damn, man. They were, they were really over the top in this one, but that formula works on me. The things that are the struggle for me is, of course, I detest the homophobia and the racism that's in the comedy. I didn't really like the special agent character. Um, She wasn't good. She wasn't good. The accent sucked. Yep. I was pretty sucked in, though. This was a two-hour movie that that I didn't have any problems watching and pulling through. So this is one of those where I have fairly positive feelings about it. It's been very clear throughout right? the course of the Right, I know. Yeah. It's so weird. I know it's a bad movie. I know I shouldn't like it. It's one of those where we know we all have character flaws. My character flaws are all over the table here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I shouldn't be supportive of this movie. There's yeah. no good reason that I should like it, but I did. I had it as an eight enjoyable. Ooh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so we're not going to be as far away as I thought. I have it as a five. Because that's pretty low. A five is a pretty low. It's not that low. It could be a lot lower. I just like you. We didn't mention how long it is. It's fucking way too long. Two Two hours hours is it's too long long for this. Like you didn't need to have this in there. There's lots of stuff we could cut. This just, I don't know, man. I I had a hard time with, for lack of a better term, how happy this movie was with itself. Like I feel like I feel like I could just see the fucking screenwriter, <laughs> director, whatever, just fucking like, yeah, oh, yeah we got it. It oh, is definitely so a bit of a circle. Yeah. They're just yeah. fucking yeah. each other off here. And I just, at the end of the day, it's a bunch of cliches. Again, it felt disjointed to me. The all the rampant homophobia. They're reveling in it. Yeah. Like yeah. they're oh, yeah, just right. reveling in it. And yeah. that's that's my problem. Well, and I think this goes to the person who wrote it, right? Shout out to Troy Duffy. Yeah. Shout out. Reverse shout out to Troy Reverse Duffy. Reverse shout out. Let's shit on Troy Duffy. Let's like, take a big dump on Troy Duffy. Yeah. Clearly doesn't sound like a good person. And Oh Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's harsh. Clearly. He's no Dino De Laurentiis, that's for sure. <laughs> we love Dino. We do, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Um because his perspective is one that is so against my current feelings, it makes it really hard and painful for me to have enjoyed this movie. Right? It's such a strange thing for me. But you did. Yeah. Yeah, but I did. And but you're getting pulled in different directions that I'm not getting pulled in here. It's fair. Yeah. I don't know, man. I just couldn't get behind it. I've had it as a five because there were there were at least some scenes where I'm like, hey, these, this action scene is good. It does fairly well. I don't want to say honor the first one, but it's fairly consistent with what the first one was. It definitely is. But overall, I don't know. Man. I will not watch this again. Zero percent chance. I won't either. Wow. For, it, for a nine and an eight, I'm a little surprised that you won't. Well, nine uh, bad. Okay, but here's my question. Will you go see Boondock Saints 3? I wouldn't go see it in theater. But you would watch it. I would rent oh it. Oh, my God. I'd rent it. How about yourself? Fuck no. I'm <laughs> done with this. I'm done with this franchise. I wouldn't want to give them any money. 
I wouldn't want to yeah. give them any money, which would be the problem. This is one of those where I'd need someone to lend me their DVD. This franchise is overstated as welcome in my books. <laughs> fuck out of here. Like I said, I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, if they do a third one of these, I swear to God. And when I found out they were, I was like, fuck, are you serious? <laughs> Just squeezing all the oh, juice yeah. they can out of this fucking shitty orange. Uh, <laughs> but let's move on to something uh, far more enjoyable. Yeah. How did you feel about this beer? Dublin or nothing. I really enjoyed it. Super easy to crush. Um, 3.5%. I was done it very quickly in this podcast and had to open another. So. Same here. It was. It's a smooth drink. Yeah. yeah. Definitely recommend Beyond the Pale. I've had quite a few of their beers and I've enjoyed all of them. So if you get a chance to uh, visit them in Ottawa or if you see any of their stuff uh, where you can get alcohol yourself, beer, then definitely pick it up. Yeah, I'm very interested in trying some more of their stuff. Like I said, this one was a smooth one for me and uh, not heavy. Like, no. I, I, but it was no, dark as fuck. Like and a, I was like, oh, this is going to be like, this is going to be a thick, like, no. This is not a fill you up stout. This is one that you could definitely have a crushable afternoon. It's a party stout. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. I like that. Well, St. Patty's Day, it's perfect. I agree. And happy St. Patrick's Day, everyone. Sorry this movie blew so much ass. Yes. <laughs> it's not yes. good. From an ex Irishman to all of you, <laughs> Slancha. Yeah, and from someone who potentially could be Irish. We don't know my fucking heritage. (laughs) Whatever. So, uh, Boondock Saints 2. Kind of a turd, as I mentioned. Uh, (laughs) Next. (laughs) This might be one of your most hated movies. I I really am negative about this. You've hated this. This is worse than almost every other movie I think we've talked about. Not Total Recall with Colin Farrell. That's the drizzling shits. That's it for this. Let's get out of here. Uh, <laughs> next week, though, next week we're going to do a horror movie, classic horror. We're going to be watching a movie starring the master of low-budget horror, Vincent Price. Cool. You know what? I have never seen a Vincent Price. I was about movie. to ask you that. Yeah. No, never. This will be my first. I'm a Vincent Price virgin. I One of the things I love about this podcast is as a like film noob, I'm getting introduced to all kinds of worlds that I didn't know about before. Yeah. And... I know that the Vincent Price films are some that are beloved and people enjoy that. Now, that being said, it is on our podcast, so I assume it's not particularly good. So it's a late period Vincent Price movie. It's Theater of Blood, if I didn't already say it. Uh, he's a little bit older. It a little low budget. Like generally speaking with the Vincent Price movies, most of the money went to his salary and the rest is <laughs> we'll just fill it in with like whatever. So there'll be some good special effects. The writing's gonna be, yeah, like oh, yeah, early it's film be school. Completely on yeah. point. Yeah. yeah. Great right, awesome. special effects, Wonderful. makeup, top shelf. No, uh, it's gonna be a fun movie to watch. Before that happens, if you have not already, please follow us on social media at the BMB Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. If you have any suggestions for beers and or movies or combinations of the both, please feel free to send us messages to those social media accounts or send us an email at the bnb podcast at gmail.com yeah we've got a request episode coming up real soon like we mentioned last week but next week we're in for a treat come back for that thank you for listening i'm cooper i'm nolan and we'll see you next time on bad movies and beer keep it sacky (laughs) the saints go marching in